Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. Chowan here, guys, it's Halloween, and today my guest, I'm super excited to talk about necromancy with her. Uh, I actually was recommended to talk to her by our mutual friend Lonnie, who has this wonderful podcast called Weird Web Radio, and he was like, oh my god, you need to talk to Cam, she knows so much about tarot and necromancy and voodoo. I am super excited to talk to Kim Huggins. Thank you so much for joining me, Kim. Oh, you're very welcome. Pleasure to be here. For the audience members who are not sure what necromancy is, but they've heard of it for sure, what is it? For me, necromancy is about working with the dead. Uh, it's really as simple as that. Uh, so for me, necromancy covers all, uh, all manner of sins, as they say, um, from things like um, calling upon spirits of the dead that you don't know, um, working with um, those spirits, but also more familial ancestral work so working with your ancestors working with the spirits of your beloved dead those that lived when when you when you're alive and you know you, you knew them very well family members um even might sound silly but to me working with the spirits of your dead um, animal companions um and also it's part and parcel of I'm going to say being a necromancer, that sounds really sensationalist, but part and parcel of being a necromancer for me is about your relationship with the dead and your relationship with death itself. Mm. Um, your own death, the death of others, um, the, the concept of entropy, decay, destruction, all of those things, um, whether that's the death of the self, um, the death of beliefs, ideas. Um, so it's, it's a process of examining your own practices, ideas, beliefs, um, and deconstructing them in a way. And bringing up the image in my head of um, very traditional Chinese uh, cremation rites where they will um, cremate the body of their loved one. And when the body has been cremated, they will pick through the ashes uh, and take out with chopsticks pieces of the skull or important pieces of bone, and they will keep those. So to me, that's what we're doing. We're cremating the ideas of the self and our practices and taking the examining them in a way examining the ash that's left behind and picking them out one by one the bits that we need um and getting down to the the bare bones of our magic and our spirituality because for me that's what it is necromancy is the bare bones of pretty much every magical tradition and certainly every religious tradition we are when we have religion um helping ourselves overcome our fear of death and helping ourselves on our journey to death. Um, so simple answer, necromancy working with the dead. <laughs> Not so simple answer. It's a bit more philosophical than that. <laughs> you know, that's so, well, first of all, the sun is just shining on me, which is ironic. Because Beautiful. When, thank you. But, you know, when people think about necromantic magic or necromancy, they're thinking of midnight at a cemetery, scary things. People are really afraid of death and 
You know, like if I were to be put at a cemetery <laughs> at midnight on Halloween, um, I would probably die of fright. People are very <laughs> afraid. And also just being in, let's say, just like a morgue. Even if you don't believe in ghosts, I mean, it's still most people would feel very uncomfortable being surrounded by dead bodies. Mm -hmm. So when you say like changing the relationship that we have with death, um, what do you mean by that exactly? You, you've touched on a couple of things there that are really interesting. Um, firstly, you talked about the idea of dying of fright um, when coming into contact with the possibility of, uh, you know, dead spirits, ghosts, etc. All these old superstitions about the dead um, and being in a place of death, uh, the graveyard, the cemetery. Um, it's it's a long-held tradition that people can die of fright when in areas associated with death, hence why there's so many taboos around being in contact with the dead, um, being in contact with dead spirits. And it's one of the reasons that necromancy and working with the dead has become so um, shadowy and hidden in the dark. Yeah. Um, there's, that's one reason why it's always traditionally associated with darkness, is that, um, that need to push the taboo away out of the light. Um, the second reason why it's done in darkness is because traditionally spirits of the dead in the ancient world were anathema to life and light. Um, when people performed necromantic rites, they did so at liminal times as well. And one of those liminal times is midnight. Um, so they would go to the place of the dead where the dead hang out. Uh, Plato describes the spirits of the dead as rolling around the tombs that they're associated with, for instance. I love that image, rolling around like boulders. Um, they would go to this liminal place, this liminal time. And for them, it was almost, particularly in the Greek and Roman practices, like they were meeting the dead halfway. You know, you're going halfway towards the darkness, halfway towards the, the realm of the dead. And then the dead would meet you the other half of the way making it easier to work with them. And you also talked about, you know, feeling uncomfortable with being near bodies or death. Uh, and that's a really big thing, I think, for the Western world. Yeah. Um, not so much for other cultures, but particularly ourselves. Um, our deaths have become removed from us by, and I might get a bit political now, um, by the death industry and the funeral industry, they have taken away our empowerment when it comes to funeral rites, when it comes to saying goodbye to our dead, and when it comes to our own death. Um, we're encouraged to make wills to tell people where our, our um, mundane goods are going after we die, but a few people know how to make preparations for their own death, um, how to express their wishes about their own death, what they want. And few people know what choices we have. Uh, most people don't realize that we don't need to be embalmed, for instance, but that it's done as a matter of course without even asking the family, um, obviously without asking the deceased. Um, and we just don't know what goes on behind those closed doors. So we have created, in a way, our own fear of death. We no longer know what death looks like. We no longer know what uh, a body of our loved one that's been laying in state for seven days looks like. We no longer know how to make sure they don't, I'm going to get really gross, they don't leak and how to keep the smell under control. Though Those right. skills have largely been lost. Um, people are working to regain that knowledge. Um, but until then, I think a fear of death is natural for us because we have had death taken away from us. Now, for me... Working with the dead is not about working in the darkness. It's not about working in the shadows. It's not about working with taboos. 
it's about working with the people I have loved who have passed on um, and they can never be dark to me. The relationship I had in life with them continues after death and and continues to grow and, and develop after death. Most people, when they think of, let's say, a parent who dies, a grandparent who dies, maybe they'll talk to them like, hey, grandma, you know, this is how I'm doing. But it's never like, oh, the relationship evolves. It's just you're kind of talking to their memory. But it Mm -hmm. seems like you're suggesting that you can actually keep on developing and evolving this relationship, even if they're physically not alive. Mm -hmm. So talking to their memory is definitely one of one of them, uh, one way of working with your dead. And it it could be nothing. It could um, even if even if ghosts and spirits aren't real, you're still you're still working with that memory of the dead. And there's still a spiritual growth there available for you. and it's part of our way of accepting death, I think, is is speaking to the memory of our loved ones. But there are things that I, I think you can do to continue developing that relationship and to help the spirit of your loved one grow as well. Um, in voodoo, um, in the voodoo tradition I practice, um, we have an idea, a concept that after death, we can help the spirit of a person continue to evolve and eventually reach a point where they become... Um, big spirits or even Loire themselves, um, or, or perhaps they just reach a state of enlightenment or illumination, which allows them to be free from whatever's holding them here, that kind of thing. So we actively work with the spirits of the dead um, to gain them elevation towards a higher state of being. And that might be through giving offerings. It might be through um, taking part in services where we speak with those spirits, where they come into someone uh, and give messages, a bit like a, you know, a, a medium or a seance, that kind of thing. Um, we call it a white table service where you have a white table with a um, very simple glass of water and a candle to illuminate the way for the spirits and allow them to come through. There are other things that you can do in certain types of voodoo where um, you kind of strengthen the spirit of the person who's passed on by giving them food offerings, drink offerings, offerings of candles. Um, So uh, a real life example, my father passed on a couple of years ago. Um, So I have a, I set up a shrine for him where it's got a photo of him and some of his, some of his favorite things. Um, And I will regularly give him his favorite food to eat and his favorite drink to eat, drink. Um, so he'll have a vodka and coke or he'll have a coffee. Um, Where do you give this I will to give him? him? At his shrine. Which is um, so in I, your house? It is, yes, yes. So um, I have a bookshelf and I've given him one one shelf of, of that bookcase. Um, it's a bit like the one behind me, but instead of lots of, uh, lots of D&D books, it's, <laughs> uh, it's my dad. Um, and so I give him regular candles and I'll sit there and just have a drink with him and I will talk with him. And the food that I give him, I consider his spirit to eat the essence of. And in so doing, just as food would have strengthened him in life, the spirit of that food strengthens his spirit after death. So he continues to be strong. How does that happen? Because we're thinking, OK, he no longer has a body or the, the person mm-hmm. who passed on no longer has a physical body. But you're saying that the spirit of the food... Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people would be like, how does food strengthen a, a person or what was once somebody who had a body when they don't have a body mm-hmm. anymore? Yeah. Um, so for me, there is there is the physical food and there is the essence of the food, the, the good nourishing stuff of the food. I think for me, life flows through everything. Um, and it's that, that numinous essence of the food that 
I give to the dead spirit when I light the candle and say, I'm giving you this food. Um, there's a long tradition in both ancient and modern um, working with the dead to give them food offerings of what they would have had in life um, or to give them food offerings specifically for the dead. So in ancient Greece and Rome, they would be given um, barley, um, milk, wine. Um, it's called ambrosia in some of the texts, um, which obviously has connotations of the, the drink of, of immortal life, that kind of thing. Other people, other traditions will create a dumb supper on Halloween uh, where they set out a place for um, their dead loved ones at the table that they would have their family meal at. And they give that person a portion of the food and they'd light a candle at the head of that that set, that place setting. Uh, and they would consider that spirit to come and sit with them and eat. Um, you would also have, um, you have people in the Mexican Day of the Dead who take a picnic to the cemetery and they lay out the picnic, picnic on top of the grave of their loved one. And as a family, they eat with their departed loved one. There's an old um, there's an old idea in, in Viking thought in Norse sagas that the dead are with us as long as their their memories are with us. So as long as a person's name and reputation are remembered, the spirit lives on. So we are actively choosing to remember that spirit and in doing so strengthening them. So special um, about Halloween and the Day of the Dead. Why on those days are spirits more likely to come back? Traditionally, it's meant to be because the the veil between the worlds is thinner. I don't really know why that is. Um, there's some some things I've read that suggested that in ancient ancient Britain, it's around that time of the year when all the animals would be culled, um, ready for the winter. Um, so it's more associated with death. You know, you're at the very end of the final harvest, which is the harvest of the animals that aren't going to make it through. Um, so that you can ensure survival of your people for the winter. I should probably ask archaeologist friends about how true that is. I think a lot of these festivals take place in winter or the dark parts of the year because our minds naturally turn to the dead. You know, it's darker, the days are shorter, the nights are longer. There's more time to reminisce. Um, we're inside, we're among our family. There's more time to talk and think about those who are no longer with us. Um, so you find a lot of a lot of traditions of working with the dead at Halloween and also at Christmas. A lot of things done to remember dead loved ones around Christmas time, which sounds a bit morbid, but to me it's really not. You're still including them as part of family celebrations, which is really nice. Traditions such as Sansei and um, 21 Divisions Voodoo have become very popular. And they are traditions where the focus is much more on one's relationship with with dead spirits and other spirits than, than anything else. There is a what I call necromantic urge um, <laughs> in us all because death is such a big thing. We all have people who die and we all die. So we want to engage in it in some way while we're still alive, while we still can. And whether that's a tiny act of, you know, giving a candle for a dead person or a big act of developing a spirituality around working with the dead, it's still necromancy. It's still working with the dead. So for me, it's it's very much a living tradition. It's not, it's not stuck in the ancient world. It's developing. It's um, influenced by other things, and it influences other things in turn. It never, it never died out. Let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about what most people think about when they think about mm. necromancy. Scary, yeah, vengeful yeah. spirits. 
both in the ancient world and, the, and in the modern world. So um, there's there's quite a few stories in ancient uh, Greek and Roman writings about vengeful spirits that come back and um, either try to connect with the living to um, gain justice for their death or um, basically haunt the living and cause the living extreme difficulty. Um, so there's one one story, uh, I forget where it's from, it might be Pausanias, I'll have to look it up, sorry, um, where a man goes to um, stay in, at an inn and that night he has a dream about a ghost um, who visits him and says, I stayed in this inn, um, the innkeeper murdered me, um, my body is dumped unceremoniously in X location please help me find my body, prove that I was killed and bring justice to me. Um, now, it's very important to note that in um, ancient Greece and Rome, not being buried properly was a way to create an angry ghost. They are called atophoi in Greek and Roman terms, um, the, the wrongly buried or the unburied. Um, so this is a ghost that is very angry, very violent, uh, restless because it hasn't been buried properly, hasn't been given the right funerary rites. Um, so this guy wakes up absolutely terrified because he's just had a ghost in his dream and he goes to where the ghost says his body was and lo and behold, there is a murdered corpse um, in the location that he said it would be. And the guy reports this, gets loads of people up and shows everyone um, this this murdered corpse and his dream is considered enough proof along with the evidence of the body, to convict the innkeeper as the murderer. Um, so justice is done, and the spirit is able to rest. However, not all of the ghosts in the ancient world were as as nice as that. There is another story about a miller who um, sees a ghost of a woman, and she is described as having unkempt dark hair, um, her clothing being covered in ash and dust, her the top of her head being covered in ash and dust, um, cremation, ash and dust, that kind of thing, uh, and having such a terrifying visage um, that she terrifies the mill worker's assistants and they they leave the mill worker to deal with it. He shuts himself in a room with her and they go back later to find that he has hanged himself. So it's, it's very much a haunting ghost story um, about how angry spirits, violent spirits are in a way seen as contagious. Their, their anger, their violence, their, their restlessness infects the living. And some of the more ancient traditions of necromancy, some of the darker traditions in, in Greece and Rome, used that anger and used that violence and, and restlessness to curse people. So there's lots of, lots of spells that are written down from that period. In, um, they've all been collected. I'll show you the book. got it right by me. Um, in the, uh, the Greek magical papyri, um, it's a collection of spells from around the 2nd and 1st century BCE to around the 4th, 5th century CE. So it's, it's quite a period. But they're, they're Greco-Roman, they're Greek, they're Roman, they're Romano-Egyptian spells. And a lot of them talk about raising or creating angry, restless spirits and sending them after people to hurt them, to um, curse them, to also attract them to the, the magician. So there's a very famous spell where the magician uses a, a voodoo doll, essentially a figurine of a woman, and he raises restless spirits in a cemetery. He takes bits of their corpses and holds them hostage and says, you will work for me 
if you do not, I will not give you back these pieces of yourself. <laughs> so he's literally holding pieces of these dead people hostage. It's really rather rude. Very bad manners. Don't try this at home. He gives the spirits that he is angered and raised and disturbed a piece of her, a piece of this woman that he wants. It's usually something like um, hair or fingernails, that kind of thing. And he says, this is a piece of her. Go fetch, essentially. And he pierces this doll of her in 13 different places using copper needles. And every time he drives a needle into her in, a ver in various different places, he says, I am driving my power into you. I'm driving my will into you. So he pierces her in the eyes, in the mouth, in the heart, in the genitals, in, in the stomach, all sorts of places um, so that she will only see his image in her eyes. She will only think of him. She will only eat when she, oh when he God. is near. It's it's creating a really violent lovesickness in this woman. And he says, you will do nothing unless you come to me. You will You will be unable to sleep or eat or drink or feel anything unless you come to me. And he sends these spirits after her like ghostly bloodhounds, essentially, um, to act out this torment on her until she relents and comes to the magician. Um, and it's, it's a formula that's repeated time and time again in these spells, this, this um, raising of the dead, this angering of restless spirits, um, this holding pieces of them hostage to send after someone to torment them until that person gives in to the magician's will. It's really really fucking dark <laughs> it's also something that has, is, is sometimes used in hoodoo um this creating or raising of of angry spirits but not not for love magic so there's something called an expedition in hoodoo where you you go to um a cemetery you find the biggest cross the biggest um it's usually a cross and you pour an extremely flammable liquid over this cross again don't try this at home, please. It's very rude. And you set it on fire and then you whip that cross. Um, and in doing so, you're whipping the spirits. You're causing those spirits pain. And you're also heating those spirits up. Um, you're making them hot. You're making them angry. You're making them violent. Everything we associate with hot, angry spirits, that's what you're making those spirits. Um, and then you send them after your target. There are various ways of doing that. And usually it's to cause sickness, pain, things like that. It's it's not it's something shocking. I would ever try. Yeah. yeah, it's not something I'd ever try because um, I've never had to for a start, luckily. Um, but also because I think it's very disrespectful. It's very, very dangerous for the person doing it. And I think there are better ways of doing things than making people ill and stuff. Um. <laughs> I mean, the book that you but, held up, the Greek Magic Papyri, um, these are like the notebooks of practicing magicians at that time. So these are things that they actually did. It's not like some fanciful yeah. story somebody decided to write. It's like somebody yeah. actually did all this. Yeah. These are handbooks. These are formulae um, for working magicians. Yes, they're they're um, they're often. It's interesting. They're often male magicians, but they're not always. Sometimes they're female magicians, um, and the spells are written to um, affect a male, for instance. But yes, these these were these were working things, and we actually we know that they did them because not only do we have the written texts which we found, but we have the dolls. We have the the archaeological evidence that they did this so that the spell I talked about with the voodoo doll with the 13 copper needle that is written in the Greek magical papyri um, it is um, called a wondrous spell for binding a lover we actually have an example of one of these dolls with the 
almost the exact wording from that spell written uh, and buried with the doll on um you know as as both written and physical evidence and this this doll um she resides now in the louvre museum in paris france so you can actually go to the website and see her she's very beautiful she's a clay figure uh, she's bound and kneeling um, you can actually see a necklace around her neck and beautiful curls in her hair. And she's got these nails driven into her um, in almost the same places as the spell written in the Greek magical papyri instructs the magician to do. And as I said, the, the text found alongside her is almost word for word what the Greek magical papyri says. So we know they did it. They're not just they're not just theoretical writings. They definitely did it. And there's there's loads of examples um of people working with the restless dead in archaeology um, we find a lot of figurines buried in graves um, with accompanying writings and, and um, defixiones lead curse tablets um, calling upon the restless dead the angry dead to go and do things sometimes it's to um to bring back stolen property for instance sometimes it's to um curse a charioteer in a race so they don't win a lot of the time it's for love magic very weird so we we do know they did it it's not just it's not just theory they actually they did this stuff <laughs> i mean you wrote a thesis paper about basically necromantic magic used for erotic binding malefic all this stuff that we just talked about yes um, you yeah. actually did a, a thesis on this i did yeah <laughs> you know, it seems like all this necromantic magic uh, like the malefic type it's about mm -hmm. control, right? And it seems to be trying to control dead spirits. And these aren't like the spirit of your favorite Uncle Harry. This is, it sounds like it's like some person who died horribly already is having a pretty hard time in the spirit world. Like, oh my God, my life was traumatic. And now somebody's like mm -hmm. making me super mad. And they're like yep. taking a part, like maybe they took like a part of my hand, like my physical hand, my dead yep. hand, yep. and they're holding it hostage. And I'm confused mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, what do I need to do? Get my hand back. And they're just like, go to that woman and make her fall so much in love with me. She can't eat. Yep. Until that, she that's comes literally it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's really horrible. Really horrible. Um, and it is. You're right. These are they are working specifically with spirits who are angry. So there's um, there's traditionally four types of spirits who are angry um, in the ancient Greek and Roman world. There's the unburied or the improperly buried. There's um, those who died violently such as the, the ghosts of uh, soldiers, um, wartime ghosts, or murdered. Um, there's the ghosts of the unmarried, um, those who died before they could marry, because in the ancient world, marriage was seen as, as part and parcel of how to have a fulfilling life. And there's those that died when they were very, very young. Um, so you're looking at child deaths, you're looking at stillborns, that kind of thing. Um, so those are the four types of angry ghosts. Usually they would work with the violent dead because they were very plentiful. Um, but you also get a lot of spells that prescribe working with the unmarried dead. Again, quite plentiful, particularly females. But there, there's some aspects of it that, funnily enough, we can, we can use in a modern understanding of our relationship with the dead because there is that understanding of restless ghosts, therefore there must be peaceful ghosts. There must be ways in which that we can, we can help the spirits of the dead be unangry. Unangry. <laughs> That's, that's a nice word. Um, so it kind of gave rise to traditions of laying ghosts to rest and giving giving peace to spirits who have 
had untimely deaths or violent deaths. So you get a lot of different traditions of how to do that. Even in the ancient world, you get those. That kind of continues into the modern world. There's a massive practice of not so much exorcisms, but uh, I guess peaceful exorcisms in a way, you know, giving these spirits the peace they need to move on. Uh, And you get people who are professionals at it. I've seen practices where a restless spirit has been identified in a house, in a home, and that spirit has been called upon, called upon, has been invited to talk with the people, to talk with the person who's helping that, that spirit to rest. And after a little while of talking, of giving offerings, of, of lighting candles, that kind of thing, of, of magical work, the spirit has been invited to reside in an object, such as a stone, a rock. And that stone or rock has then been taken to a place of burial, a cemetery, that kind of thing, and placed peacefully where the dead belong. There's a text from ancient Sumeria where they identify the spirits of dead that they don't know and they go through a series of steps to lay those ghosts to rest. They feed them, they give them the offerings that the dead should be given at a funeral and they, they create figurines, a man and a woman figurine because they don't know the, um, the gender of these ghosts and to those figurines they do what you would do to the body of a dead person when you bury them and give them funeral rites so they're, they're saying I've created this image that might be of you don't know if you're male or female so I've done both just in case and I'm going to pr- perform the proper rites for you and hope that that lays your spirit to rest you also have people in the ancient Greek world giving traditional funerary offerings to restless spirits such as milk, wine, barley, to again almost perform the second funeral and hope that that gives them what they need to rest. In the modern world, you, again, it depends on what kind of uh, what kind of restless ghost you are. Um, some people I know have exercised violent spirits um, using various types of magic, hermetic magic, banishing rituals, that kind of thing. Other people have done, done what I've said where you get the the spirit to reside in an item and take that to where the spirit would usually be. Other people just work with that spirit. Other people sit and invest the time and the energy to form a relationship with that spirit to eventually ask them to leave, to help them and guide them to the next stage, if you will. Um, There's a lot of people that kind of see themselves as, as midwives of the dead who see and hear spirits and they will guide them to that, that light at the end of the tunnel. And that, that to me is, the preferable way of doing it I think it's gentler it's kinder and I think in all dealings we need to be kind yeah I'm thinking about stop running these are our ghost adventures basically three bros right and so it's like Zach and his two buddies and they go to haunted establishments all across America and they also went to Scotland and Ireland are they practicing a type of necromancy I mean they're trying to conjure up spirits Yeah, it, it sounds just like a lot of the um, the magicians from, from the ancient Greek world, in a way, who will anger these spirits, raise them and, and get them to do stuff for them. Yeah, it's it's pretty much that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not surprised they capture phenomenon because they're making these ghosts angry. <laughs> but you know, what, um, what's scary is, is that all three of them have had ghosts or spirits follow them back home. And so yeah, I think one or happens. two of them... They lost their marriages because of you know, the ghost came and was giving nightmares to their entire family. Yeah. And then they had this priest come on and say, I don't think you guys should keep doing this. This is so bad for your health, your physical health as well. Think about a lot of people, especially young people, they want to go to the cemetery and do the spooky stuff. Yep. What are some dangers of that? 
There are, yes. And as you said, uh, following you home is one of them. Um, spirits attach themselves to the living. They are drawn to the living. They're drawn to blood. They're drawn to um, warmth. And that's why we light candles for them. They're drawn to that warmth. Um, and that's why we give them, often they're given um, animal offerings because they're drawn to that blood. And it's why in ancient Greece, blood was one of the things that is offered to spirits as they come out of the the underworld to speak with you. So yeah, following you home is one of them because you've you've kind of said, hey, I know you're here. Hey, I know how to work with you. You're like shining a massive beacon. <laughs> it's not not wise. It is. It can be very bad for your health because as you've identified, they can send nightmares, bad dreams. They can also become poltergeist activity in the home. And in some traditions, it is believed they do create illness. Um, working with the dead is still taboo in some traditions because death is contagious, as they say. It brings you a little bit closer to death in a way in, in some traditions. Um, so if you're not working with it properly, if you don't know how to respectfully treat these dead, you're just basically dipping your toes into, into the underworld and swimming around a bit and paddling, but your toes are still wet. You know, you're still slightly in the underworld without knowing how to deal with that, without knowing how mm. to swim. So, yes, I think another one of the other very practical downsides is that you just scare yourself. Like people, people go and do this stuff because they want to scare themselves, but then they do scare themselves mm -hmm. and they wonder why they feel so scared. <laughs> A lot of just mainstream magic or religious rites that people do, it seems like necromancy. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of our work, if, if we do work with spirits, is a form of necromancy. But there's a lot of magic which doesn't work with spirits, particularly in, in the modern pagan world. A lot, of, um, a lot of witches and Wiccans don't work with spirits very much. They prefer to work with gods, which arguably are not spirits. They also work with forces of nature, um, things like that. So I don't think all magic or the majority of magic is necromancy. I think if you are working in a spiritist tradition, working with spirits, then yes, it's, it's more likely to be necromantic in nature. I always like to remind myself that wherever we walk, we're walking on death. That sounds awful. Um, <laughs> you know, we are, we're walking on the bones of countless dead people, dead animals. Everything that we eat and do is based on a process of decay, which creates life. And that, that's kind of what magic is in a way. It's, it's walking on these, these bones of the ancestors. And even if you don't intend to work with the dead, what you're doing usually is working, working with the building blocks of that in a way. You're, um, you are communicating with a tradition which is long, long established that people thousands of years ago did. You're doing what ancestors did. So there is a fundamental basis of spirituality, of religion, of magic that is about the dead that people don't realize. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers they're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. 
Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five star rating. Each five star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan signing off. <laughs>